0: Join the conversation, local issues that matter in our community. With Uncle Fernando on Bay FM
1: 99.9. Listen to Uncle Fernando on Bay FM
2: 88. <laughs> 99.9. 99.9. I am joined on the line by Professor Dominic Dwyer, who is currently based at the New South Wales Health Pathologies Institute of Clinical Pathology and Medical Research at Westmead in Sydney, but he's not speaking to us in that capacity today. It is as a leading medical virologist and infectious diseases expert here in Australia, and the sole Australian representative in the 10-strong World Health Organisation team to visit Wuhan earlier this year. And that was part of the investigation into the source of the coronavirus pandemic. Great to speak with you, Professor Dwyer.
1: Thank you very much, Fernanda, for having me on your program.
2: Look, before we get into all that serious stuff, just to prove that you are human, uh, tell us a bit about yourself who are you and why did you get into this field of medical research in the first place?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, look, I uh, did my training in medicine as a medical student and a junior medical officer at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. And that was really at the beginning of the HIV epidemic in Australia and obviously worldwide. So suddenly people were talking more about difficult infectious diseases than they had been. I mean, I think there had been a, a kind of general viewpoint that, oh, well, we've got plenty of antibiotics and we've got plenty of treatments. You know, infectious diseases aren't so much of a problem anymore. Um, but HIV and, you know, the other diseases that followed clearly showed that this wasn't the case. So that uh, certainly piqued my interest. And then uh, having trained at St Vincent's, I then came to what was then the brand new Westmead Hospital uh, in a part of Sydney that was, you know, very much underserved by quality medical care and with a very diverse population. So all sorts of unusual infections and diseases and health problems in in that part of Sydney. So that's kind of what got me going and then you know, it's been all downhill ever since.
2: <laughs> do you only work in labs, uh, Dominic, or do you also do hands-on work with people who who get sick?
1: No, no. Look, I do. Uh, I, I do both. So I used to do a lot of clinical work on the wards as an infectious diseases physician, and that was, uh, you know, particularly in the era when we didn't have good treatments for HIV. Uh, I now run. Uh, the main public health laboratory in in New South Wales and one of the few in the country. Uh, But I still keep my clinical hand in by doing outpatient work. Um, uh, So I do see, for example, plenty of uh, people with HIV. and, And in fact, as I often say to the sort of medical students, the change in HIV management and treatment has been the biggest advance I've seen in medicine. You know, to go from something that was untreatable Uh, I guess, 20 plus years ago to now something that's merely an outpatient uh, visit and, you know, a blood test and prescription has really been very, very dramatic.
2: Well, I'll ask you a bit about that right at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I got you on to talk about coronavirus. Why were you chosen to be on this World Health Organization team?
1: Well, I think uh, I have worked in China before, so I was part of the WHO team uh, that helped manage and investigate SARS back in 2003. Uh, so spent uh, time in Beijing at the height of that outbreak. I'd also been involved in various WHO activities around training people in laboratory aspects of infections in developing parts of the world. Uh, so had been involved with them. We also have a WHO national influenza. Centre at Westmead. So I've had a lot of WHO contacts over the years. Plus, in my clinical work, I've been very much involved in outbreak investigation genomics of viral infections those sorts of things were which were the sorts of skills I guess or experience that they wanted in investigating the origins of SARS-CoV-2.
2: Well just on that visit earlier this year in February I think it was there was a, a lot of media of course. Just remind us of the key findings in that WHO report that you were part of.
1: So the findings fell into two sort of main areas. The first bit was what we call phase one, uh, which was about reviewing what data there was already available. Uh, and then the second part, or phase two, was really then about what studies do we need to design to take the work further. And the reason it's sort of done in that way is that investigations of origins take time, they're complex they uh, may take even decades to be sorted out. I mean, if you take SARS, for example, it was about 14 or 15 years before the, the origin of that was really well sorted. So it would be naive to think that it could have all been done in one visit. So we deliberately wanted to set up processes that would take it forward. Now, in terms of the main findings, clearly the virus got going in Wuhan. That's where the big outbreaks started and then spread around, well, China, of course, first, and then to the rest of the world. But the sort of focus of this study was around what happened in, you know, the first few weeks of the epidemic in Wuhan, and even in the weeks before cases were first identified. So it was that time period that we were really focusing on. So in December 2019, uh, there'd been about 170-odd cases in Wuhan, but as we found, there had there was evidence that the virus had possibly been circulating in Wuhan for some weeks or even a month, months maybe, before it got going as a big outbreak that everybody heard about. Uh, now, where that virus came from, of course, is the, the big question. And again, that was where very much part of the work was done. There was a lot of work done on the animal origins or potential animal origins of this infection, because that's that's what usually happens with these things. There was also discussion about other sort of ideas and hypotheses that people had put up, uh, including laboratory leak or frozen food or a whole range of other things, and we looked at those as well.
2: Well, we'll get into some of those, but the report concluded there was no definitive uh, proof for or against uh, however, you believe that the, that China is the source and that spillover from an animal is the most plausible cause. Just talk to that, if you would.
1: So there's two parts to what you said there, uh, Fernando. So the first part is that there's no doubt that it blew up in Wuhan. OK, so uh, nobody can avoid that. And that's important. What we don't know, though, is was it present somewhere else and then came to Wuhan, for example. Did it come in an infected animal, a bat or, you know, other intermediate animal and so on or however, you know, but uh, that we don't entirely know. The reason the, the sort of animal work was is so important is that with every other virus just about, including SARS, including MERS, which is a related virus in the Middle East, they're of animal origin. So it was really looking at those animal sources that come into a big city like Wuhan. I mean, Wuhan's 12 million people, it's a big cosmopolitan centre, big travel hub, uh, you know, but at the, at the local street level, you know, what, what, what's going on in the marketplaces and wet markets and those sorts of things and, and trying to tease out that sort of evidence without dismissing any other thoughts that could be important.
2: And why do you believe that the most plausible cause is uh, from an animal?
1: Because, first of all, that's the way all the others have happened. So, so history will tell us this is what what's going to happen. The second thing is that there are plenty of small bits of evidence talking about animals in China, in Wuhan. So, for example, we know that live animals were, wild animals were in the market in Wuhan, in the Huanan market it was called, in Wuhan. We know that wild animals were there. We now know that there are a lot of animals that are actually what we call permissive to SARS-CoV-2 infection. In other words, you know, readily infected by SARS-CoV-2 like humans, and they're present there. Uh, we know that um, the condition of marketplaces and so on at the particular one in Wuhan, but indeed through other parts of China, other parts of Southeast Asia and indeed Africa. Many, many parts of the world have these sort of markets where all sorts of stuff is sold uh, with not necessarily much control. We also have evidence now that related coronaviruses are present in a whole lot of different bats that are reasonably closely related to SARS-CoV-2 and also some of the features of the virus that make it so problematic in humans are present in these bat viruses in the wild. So the circumstantial evidence is all leaning towards the animal hypothesis. We don't have the sort of gotcha piece of evidence, if you like. That can take time, and that's what I was getting to in the beginning. These things can be slow. Mm.
2: Now, you and the WHO team are very concerned that we're fast running out of time to identify the original source of the pandemic. Tell us about that.
1: So the plan for the whole study was, as I said, uh, you know, the second part was around developing the studies that need to be done to take this further forward. So that's all fine. That was agreed to with the Chinese and with the WHO, everybody agreed what to do. But then, you know, dare I say, the politics sort of Kind of interfered with that because mm. we, you know, look, we were there a year after the outbreak had started. So already that's, you know, a long, a longish period of time. Then uh, the plan was to start the second phase of work straight away. Um, but in fact, it's been delayed and delayed because of political archibaji, I guess.
2: Mm.
1: We're now in the situation that, you know, we've been six, seven, eight months since we were there and still nothing has progressed. So the time is getting away from us to do some of the studies that need to be done. Some can can be done now at any time, that's fine. But it's the ones that, you know, you want to try and do reasonably quickly.
2: And what exactly does the team need in order to complete its work and to get to the bottom of the origins of the virus?
1: Well, it needs, first and foremost, the political will uh, of everybody to keep going. So, um, you know, we need the Chinese to agree, we need other countries in the world to agree, we need the WHO to agree, you know, to get on and start working. You know, these sorts of studies always require international cooperation. I mean, you can't just waltz into another country and say, I'm going to do this or do that. It's got to be done collaboratively, openly, transparently. And you know, you've got to work at the diplomacy to allow that sort of thing to happen. And I think a lot of the kind of stuff that's happened over the last six to eight months or even before we went inhibits that sort of work because people attack each other or countries attack each other about things. uh, And that just, you know, simplistically puts everyone's hackles up and then nothing gets done. Uh, And I think that's... Okay, it's bad enough for this time round to try and find out what you know what SARS-CoV-2 is all about, but it's also really important for the next time. You know, mm. the world has to learn from this experience to do it better next time round, uh, and that's what worries me, or worried us also as a group that we will be dilly-dally. You know the left are going to be able to set up mechanisms to you know get on top of the next pandemic because there will be one sometime.
2: Mm, And I will ask you about that. What are you hearing though? Will this is this likely to happen in time for us to be able to get to the bottom of
1: it? Look, I can't be uh, completely sure of that. I think it's uh, uh, some of the things can be done and just needs everybody to agree to get on and do them. Fine. Uh, and there's some of the things we outlined in our report. Uh, then there are some things that are more difficult as time goes on. So some of the kind of biological testing and so on that you would normally like to do in a, you know, after an outbreak or something. You know, the longer you leave it, the less reliable that sort of data becomes and the testing becomes. So you want to get onto that. Now, to do that, you've got to get everyone to agree. Now, WHO are trying to do this. They're sort of forming... Uh, I guess another sort of group to try and work up frameworks for origins investigations, so that not only can we solve this one, but you know look forward to the future. Mm. So so that sort of stuff's underway, but these things take time. You know, I mean, Mm. they're often bureaucratic and diplomatic things to sort through.
2: Professor Dwyer, you and the investigative team have been very critical of media reporting of the leak, the lab leak theory. Just talk to that, if you would.
1: So, look, uh, the laboratory leak theory is is important to discuss. It wasn't actually part of our mandate when, you know, when we were sent to Wuhan. The WHO didn't put it kind of in there. However, we did, in a sense, challenge our Chinese colleagues to talk about it because we said to them, look, you know, everybody's suspicious of this. We've got to try and, you know, work through it and you've got to tell us, you know, kind of what things you did and so on. Um, So we pushed for that sort of discussion to happen. The difficulty with the media approach to this, it wasn't so much the media but maybe the political approach, was that, oh, well, you know, if it suited President Trump to say, oh, it's a China virus and it came out of some, you know, lab in Wuhan... Um, and, look, you know, the intelligence agencies tell me this and that, well, uh, you know, all that does is kind of ramp everybody up and the media and so on, and everybody's got an agenda and, and so on. And But the, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, provided evidence is important. You know, there's no point saying, oh, there's a lab leak, must be, when there's no evidence. Um, and so... You know, we asked intelligence agencies, uh, if you've got any evidence, tell us and we'll follow it up. Um, And you can see when President Biden came in, well, he asked his intelligence agencies to work on this and do another report and so on. And they released that, what, a couple of weeks back. And again, it didn't actually show anything. So the point of all of that discussion is to say that if there's evidence you've got to put it up so it can be examined. You can't say, oh, well, you know, we heard a couple of people were sick in the lab, you know, without some sort of detail because otherwise you just, you know, you're jumping at shadows. Uh, So I think that's why, um, you know, it's problematic. And because it's evidence-free, that sort of perhaps media or diplomatic approach, it means then that, for example, in this case, China... So, well, we don't believe you, you haven't got any evidence. And you know, so you get this sort of standoff and then what that does is inhibit the other Going on in the background that you're trying to, to work
2: through. Mm, there's no doubt that it's soured everything. Now, this theory appears to have been pushed by right-wing political forces in the US, particularly those connected with the former President Trump, which has led to a lot of uh, anger in China, of course, as you refer to, and a counterclaim that it was actually US intelligence that planted the virus in Wuhan.
1: You know, I mean, it, it's almost childish, isn't it? You know, Says, oh, well, you did this, and the other side just comes back and said, no, no, no we didn't, you did that. Uh, and it just becomes a tit for tat sort of argument and doesn't sort of advance anything. Mm. Uh, I mean, there is a concern about laboratory leaks. I mean, we do know they occur uh, and they have happened, but there isn't any evidence around this particular one.
2: And there is research going on in that lab in Wuhan, is there not?
1: There is. Of course there is. I mean, the...
2: So it is plausible.
1: It's plausible. It's plausible. No, no. And that's why it's in the WHO report. It is there as a a hypothesis. It's just that the evidence to date on Mm -hmm. it makes it highly unlikely. Now, if more evidence comes forward... Fine. I mean, no, we never said, oh, yeah, you know, ignore the lab stuff. That's just silly. Um, no, no, it, it's there, but you need some evidence. Yeah. So if people have got some evidence, well, then you work it up and away you go.
2: Sure. Look, a question you've been asked before in the media, and I'll ask it again. Is it possible that uh, all traces were removed from view of investigators by the Chinese authorities before you got there?
1: Hey, look, yeah, so that then is, is what's difficult about, talking about laboratory leaks because, yes, you can have a laboratory leak. We know that. uh, And they have happened in the past with all sorts of bugs. But then if you say, oh, well, now the whole thing is hidden to avoid anyone knowing about it, well, that adds another whole level of kind of control of the whole thing. And that then starts, that means you're implying it's a kind of state-sponsored hiding of facts. Uh, well, you know, I don't know how you answer that sort of question.
2: Well, it's out of your realm as a medical scientist.
1: But look, to be fair, you know, we visited the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We spoke to the uh, operating managers and so on we spoke to their biosecurity people uh we spoke to the scientists doing the research on bats and they do a lot you know they're one of the world leaders in sort of bat research Mm. and the sorts of questions we asked would be that you know i do a lot of laboratory inspections for example you know the, the questions that you ask when you walk into a lab to accredit them and so on you know they answered all of those questions in a way that made perfect sense We could tell they had obviously thought of this themselves and they had done, you know, they'd gone and bled all their staff, done testing on their staff, for example, uh, reviewed their operations, had independent people come in from China uh, and, and have a look. So they had obviously worried about all that leak. They told us they couldn't find any evidence of it. The questions that we asked about it, their responses were, Kind of made sense. Uh, the facility is a very good facility. The scientists are very good scientists. Um, so there was nothing in that sort of examination to say that anything had happened or had been hidden. And to mm. this, it's actually pretty hard to hide something like that. I mean, you can, but you know, uh, this is not just a discussion between one or two people oh, shush, don't tell anyone something happened. This becomes a you know big, complicated um, sort of scenario, um, mm. and and I mean it's possible it's possible, but you know considering the other animal evidence that we've sort of alluded to, it just sort of starts to fall away as something plausible until mm. we get some more you know something comes up.
2: Is it true to say though that we'll probably never get to the bottom of it, the origins?
1: Oh, look, I'm optimistic these things take time. Uh, so, you know, if you look at Ebola virus, for example, we've had outbreaks of Ebola virus in Africa for, what, 40-odd years ago it was first recognised. It's only been the last couple of years that they've figured out the origins. Mm-hmm. So it can take a long time. SARS, you know, took 14 or 15 years. These things, you know, are tricky. And so I'm optimistic that we will. But, you know, it's not something that's it's going to be easy or necessarily rapid. One of the things that's, you know, very different, of course, is that the technology for doing a lot of this sort of work has improved dramatically. Um, so, you know, that also gives me optimism that, uh, you know, we'll sort things out eventually.
2: Fingers crossed. As you are aware, Professor Dwyer, there are a great many conspiracy theories doing the rounds and Lots of videos going viral. Now, most appear to be coming from the United States. You no doubt are too busy to watch any of these. But they are proliferating widely online and leading to a lot of confusion out there in the community. I know as a serious scientist, you don't want to get into conspiracy theories, and neither do I. But I'd like you to help us, if you would, for a few moments, Help us separate fact from fiction and improve our understanding because we really need to be guided by the best possible science and research here. So I'd like your reaction to some of the points made in this video by a US physician by the name of uh, Dr. Dan Stock. It's a recent address he made to the Mount Vernon School Board meeting in Indiana which has really gone viral right around the world. Let's take a quick listen, and it's about two minutes long.
0: Dr. Dan Stock, uh, 5777 West Seven North McCordsville, Indiana. Um, To to address your comment, gee, it's hard to believe we're 18 months into this and still having a problem. And I would suggest the reason we still have a problem is because we're doing things that are not useful, and we're getting our sources of information from the Indiana State Board of Health and the CDC, who actually don't bother to read science before they do this. Um, I'm actually a functional family medicine physician. That means I am specially trained in immunology and inflammation regulation. And everything being recommended by the CDC and the State Board of Health is actually contrary to all the rules of science. So things you should know about coronavirus and all other respiratory viruses, they are spread by aerosol particles, which are small enough to go through every mask. By the way, the literature that supports all of that is in a flash drive that we presented to you. It's been given to the secretary. As a matter of fact, it quotes at least three studies (laughs) sponsored by the NIH to that exact fact, even though the CDC and the NIH have chosen to to ignore the very science that they paid to have done. That is why you keep struggling with this, is because you cannot make these viruses go away. The natural history of all respiratory viruses is that they circulate all year long, waiting for the immune system to get sick through the winter or become deranged, as has happened recently with these vaccines, and then they cause symptomatic disease because they cannot be filtered out and they have animal reservoirs and this is very important point no one can make this virus go away the CDC has managed to convince everybody that we can handle this like we did smallpox where we could make a virus go away smallpox had no animal reservoirs the only thing it learned to infect was humans that's why we were able to make that virus go away that will not happen with this any more than it will with influenza the common cold respiratory syncytial virus adenoviral respiratory syndromes or anything else that has animal reservoirs. So the reason you can't do this is because you're trying to do something which has already been tried and can't be done. Equally important is that vaccination changes none of this, especially with this vaccine. And I would hope this board would start asking itself before it considers taking the advice of the CDC, the NIH and the State Board of Health. Why were you're doing things about this that we didn't do for the common cold influenza or respiratory syncytial virus? And then ask yourself, why is a vaccine that is supposedly so effective having a breakout in the middle of the summer? when respiratory viral syndromes don't do that.
2: That's U.S. physician Dr. Dan Stock addressing the Mount Vernon School Board meeting in the state of Indiana just last month, which I believe was deciding whether to make it compulsory for students to be vaccinated. Now it's really gone viral. Professor Dwyer, that's in the United States, and I don't expect you to forensically go through each point, but I would like your general a reaction, because there there's a lot of uh, confusion, as I said, and mistrust, and some scepticism that the the path that we're we've taken to deal with the viral outbreak and the pandemic is not necessarily the right one. Does he make any valid points at all, as far as you're concerned?
1: Oh, look, I think uh, there are certainly some uh, valid points in what he says. Uh, I mean. But then you've got the the thing is how do you draw out what's a a correct scientific fact from what do you then do to stop a disease spreading in the community? So some of the observations he's made are quite true. But the step into saying, well, you should or shouldn't do various public health measures, be it vaccination or wearing a mask or whatever it might be, is a step that you've got to take very, very carefully. I mean, look. This is complex, obviously, uh, and there are no easy right answers uh, and that's why everybody has an opinion and that's why there's differences of opinion and, you know, people get a head up about it. If it was easy and the facts are obvious, well, there wouldn't be terribly much discussion, but but it isn't. And so that's why there is a lot of discuss, discussion generated by all of this. So, for example, one of the points he makes was, uh, you know, We're naive to think that the coronaviruses uh, will go away um, because they they live in animals. That's absolutely true. Nearly all the viruses that have come across into man in the last sort of 40 or 50 years have come from animals. So viruses that live in the animals, well, even if you do something and get rid of the virus in humans, it's virtually very rarely possible to get rid of it in the animals as well. So the animals can always act as a source of the virus. So yes, some viruses are only in humans, and a good example is smallpox. Another example is polioviruses. Because they don't have sort of uh, measles is another one. because they don't have uh, an animal reservoir, if you get rid of it in humans, well, in principle, the disease can never come back. Because there's nowhere for it to hide, but coronaviruses and heaps of other viruses have reservoirs in 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 animals, and so even if you, for example, had a vaccine or a drug treatment or something like that for the humans, you still always have the risk that the virus is present in animals and could come over again. Um, and we see this, you know, HIV is a good example. I mean, there've been multiple introductions of HIV in Africa into humans from their host species, which happen to be uh, monkeys of one form or another. So this happens all the time. Ebola virus leaks into humans all the time. Uh, so coronaviruses all have animal origins. So it's not surprising that those viruses continue to, um, you know, be around or indeed new variants or versions come to life as well. Uh, so, so yes, that's true that You know, if they're in animals, they're very hard to get rid of. But that doesn't mean you can't use a vaccine. So uh, I think that's where some of his argument falls over.
2: Well, he's very critical of the current approach. Do you think the response to this worldwide outbreak in terms of dealing with the spread of it and bringing it under control is the right one?
1: Well, uh, I mean, if I go back to what the WHO work was about, we were very clear, and this is what we were told to do, that this was about understanding the origins of the virus. It's not about assessing the responses to the virus and the outbreaks that it caused. And this is what a lot of politicians and perhaps media and so on got confused about, that, you know, everyone's saying, oh, well, it's so-and-so's fault they didn't do this or that correctly, and that's why mm. That's a different question to asking, well, where does it come from? What cave or what animal or whatever?
2: But I guess I'm asking you: the medical approach to it is that? Do you think that's the correct approach?
1: I I, I think it is. Uh, I think there's no one correct approach, uh, and every population or community or country is different. Um, and so the approaches are clearly multifactorial. I'm a great believer in vaccination. It's completely changed the way we handle childhood diseases that were previously. Killers. Um, I think vaccination is the way to go. However, the vaccines aren't great. I mean, they're they're very good, but they're not. You know, they're not 100%. No, no vaccine is. Mm -hmm. So it's not only going to be the vaccine. Masks. I think they work well, but they're not anything like 100% effective. Uh, So uh, 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 lockdowns effective, but they're nothing like 100% effective. So you end up with all of these sort of approaches that by themselves are not going to be the answer. But when they come together, uh, they have a benefit. Uh, And we will get over the current outbreak in New South Wales, just like Victoria got over their one last year. Mm. But if we didn't do anything, then it would be way, way worse.
2: Mm. So you are convinced that vaccines are our main way out of this?
1: I think they are uh, the main way out of it uh, from two points of view. One is that they don't stop you from getting the infection, but they protect you from getting seriously ill. So in other words, by having the people vaccinated, even if they get the virus, then they're less likely to end up in intensive care or dying or you know, being in hospital for weeks mm. on end. So that is one very significant benefit, and we've seen that time and time again. The second thing is, well, what does it do for the community that if you vaccinate you know, the great bulk of the community then the virus is probably less likely to be able to spread around. And that becomes very important because some communities have really high rates of, of, of bad health. I mean, if mm. you know, living in Byron Bay in the sunshine and going for a swim every day, fantastic. You know, people are, uh, uh, you know, may well be a very fit and healthy population.
2: That's why we've barely had a case. <laughs> may well
1: be. But, you know, you go to, for example, Indigenous communities at the moment. Mm in Wilcannia, Bawarana, Galagamba and these places, you know, you've got populations with lousy access to healthcare. You've got uh, underlying medical problems, a whole range of different things. So, you know, the uh, uh, the impact there is is much, much greater. And I would say that the vaccination in places like that is absolutely fundamentally important.
2: I guess one thing that people are very confused about is, why can I still get it if I'm vaccinated? And now we're seeing those new massive waves in Israel and uh, the UK when uh, most people have been vaccinated. Mm. People are very confused when they hear it, things like that.
1: Yeah, yeah well, that, that's true. So so first of all, the, the vaccines don't stop you getting infected. Okay, so that's important. People think that, oh, well, the vaccine will stop me ever getting infected with whatever I've been vaccinated against. It doesn't. What it does do is give your immune system the chance to be ready for it when it comes into contact with Mm. it. And so by being ready for it, it stops you getting seriously ill. So that's the key. So, yes, you can get infected if you've been vaccinated, Uh, and, yes, you can get sick, but the rate of being seriously ill is dramatically different. And then the other thing with the vaccination story is that, for example, you know, in the UK, people, you know, the Prime Minister patting himself on the head to say aren't we great we've got 70 or 80 percent of the 70 percent of the population vaccinated yet they're still having big waves of disease and that's because 30 percent of the population are not vaccinated and those people who are not vaccinated Mm -hmm. might be in the poor parts of big cities in London or Birmingham or what have you or uh, don't speak English as a first language or haven't haven't engaged with the health system etc etc so you can be an optimist and say 60 or 70% vaccination is good, but you're still leaving 30% of an at risk population underprotected.
2: And they're probably the two very key messages that uh, probably need to be going out a lot better. Look, you mentioned vaccines um, are our main way out of this, but we need to have um, the tools as well. Can I just ask you that that doctor we heard from, Dr. Dan Stock, and there are many others, have mentioned in terms of in our toolkit, uh, they've been using and spruking ivermectin, uh, which is proving apparently very successful in treating people with COVID 19. Um, he says that it's keeping people out of hospital, making them better, quicker, and even preventing people from contracting the virus. Is that true? And where exactly is the evidence at for? ivermectin which i i believe has been used successfully in developing countries to treat bacterial diseases and the like for many decades is that right
1: yeah so ivermectin is a drug that we've used in infectious diseases for a long time and it's also used in the animal world as well it's basically a, 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 an anti-parasitic drug it, it kills a number of parasites of humans it, it was postulated to have some antiviral effect, and there's quite a lot of drugs that have antiviral effect in the test tube, if you like, in the lab. But when you take them out into the clinic and you do the proper sorts of trials to see whether they work, um, this is one of the ones that's failed. Um, So there have been a number of trials of ivermectin published that show that it doesn't have a benefit in treating active COVID-19. Or in preventing people from going, you know, to intensive care and so on. So that's why I would never use it. I think it's it's just pointless. I mean, it it, it, it they have some toxicities as well, like any medication or drug. Uh, there are certain side effects, and ivermectin certainly does have a number of side effects. So mm. uh, normally, if a drug has benefit, uh, you weigh up is, is that benefit worth more than the side effects? And in the case of ivermectin. There was no clinical benefit, and that's why... The, and the effect profile is present, so I wouldn't use it in any of my patients.
2: Mm. Is it right, though, that it's been used in a couple of states in India, such as uh, Uttar Pradesh, for example? Apparently, they got on top of their pandemic by rolling out ivermectin um, as a preventative and a treatment option. Do you know much about that?
1: Yeah, look, uh, again, um, uh, uh, sometimes... You can be, have confusion about the way pandemics roll through towns or provinces or, or what have you, or families, so that in our households, um, you know, that they come in waves. Okay. So you have waves infection. And if you look at the curves in Australia and the curves in countries around the world, this is what happens. And this happens with flu and you know, 1918 flu, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. So they do occur in waves. So then you've got to say, well, does an, an intervention at a particular time, like, say, giving the community ivermectin, mm. um, you know, does that change the epidemic curve, flatten the curve, as we used to talk about? Mm. In fact, the evidence that, that that does do that is is not there. And, and I think it's, a, uh, in my opinion, a misinterpretation of the fact that dishing out ivermectin makes a difference. I don't think it does. Right. Um, and, Gives people a you know false sense of security, and 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 I think this is what tends to happen. You know, people um, uh, think there are particular things that that that, that might work, and so mm. group them uh, for whatever reason. Um, and and but the evidence, you know, it's got to be guided by evidence ultimately. Mm. You can certainly try it, and people did try ivermectin plus a range of other things as well. But the trials showed that they didn't work. So then what you've got to do is say, OK, this one doesn't work. We put it
2: aside. Do we use it at all here in Australia to treat people with COVID-19?
1: I'm not aware of it being used in any hospital in Australia. Mm.
2: One claim that's been circulated widely is that ivermectin um, has been discredited and is being suppressed by the pharmaceutical industry because there's little money to be made from it. Uh, compared to these new vaccines. Now, you work in the field. Could there be any grain of truth that that could go on? Could that be possible whatsoever?
1: Uh, look, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's plenty not to like about big farming. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Um, but I certainly have not heard of ivermectin, you know, being discredited because of that point of view um the you know ivermectin is actually a very old drug uh, and you know like in the sense that you know it's off patent and you know been around for a while and so, quite
2: cheap to use as well quite
1: cheap, yeah yeah that's right and and look you know drug companies can be you know pretty protective of their patents and their new drugs coming through and and that sort of thing. So, you know, again, I'm not an expert in that area, but uh, I, I'm not aware that ivermectin has been singled out by pharmaceutical companies to, to um, you know, stop it. And anyway, it wouldn't be the vaccine companies that would want to stop ivermectin because, uh, you know, if there were other drugs out there, and they're being developed, you know, people are starting clinical trials of antiviral drugs, uh, you know, if there are drugs out there that you use to treat an active infection, well, that's certainly where you get competition between
0: mm. pharmaceutical
1: industry and their compounds and so on. But that's a different thing to the vaccination, which is about stopping you, you know, from getting the infection in the mm. first place by vaccinating, you know, months before.
2: Are there enough uh, checks and balances in our system here in Australia that would prevent that sort of thing from happening?
1: Oh look, I'm not sure I, I can answer that. I mean, I think the you know uh, TGA and the various regulatory bodies in Australia do as good a job as they can. I think there have been, I think people got swamped during COVID with with managing everything that was coming in, and that's not a unique that's not unique to Australia. Uh, that happened everywhere. I think our Uh, checks and balances are pretty good. And I think the other thing that's certainly a feature in Australia is, and sometimes leads to clashes with the the drug industry, is is that we control the pricing of this, these sorts of things pretty well. So, you know, in very simplistic terms, drugs or vaccines don't get into Australia unless they're reasonably priced. And that's quite different to to what you see in the US, for example, so I would actually say that our, at least our pricing structure for for new compounds and stuff has been really good. And we've seen this in a number of areas of infectious diseases like hepatitis C treatments or HIV treatments or hep B treatments, those sorts of things. So mm. from that of view, I think we do actually very well in Australia.
2: Well, there are certainly claims uh, in the US that the CDC is captured by vested interests a lot of the time. As one of Australia's leading medical scientists, can you uh, reassure us everyday folk who know very little about medical science, and certainly the way it all works, that we are getting the best possible medical guidance on all of this that is uh, in the public health interest?
1: Look, I think we are. Uh, I mean, you know, as a as a, uh, a doctor who looks after patients, you know, I want to do the best thing for the person in front of me. You know, that's the whole reason I'm in the games. So uh, I want to see the best advice for that reason. Um, and so I, I think the medical advice and so on that's given to government is along those lines, you know, they want the best thing for the individuals and, in the case of public health, the best thing for the community. Now, the trouble is that there isn't a binary solution to all of this, you know. It's not either you do this or you do that. It's it's nuanced, it's complicated, uh, our competing interests, you know, that's true, there are economic impacts, there are all sorts of things. So so trading that line is actually difficult. I, I, I think... Even though the politicians, you know, there's a bit too much sort of argy-bargy for my liking, but in general in Australia, it's been very good to see that whoever's a Premier or even the Prime Minister, next to them is the Chief Health Officer. So at least to me, uh, you know, our politicians, for all their faults, are being guided by... The, the public health expertise. And that is different to what's happened in other countries. I mean, you've only got to look at perhaps the US to see where politicians fired their scientists. They didn't want them. Uh, Brazil, another country, you know, even the UK, you know, had arguments. So I actually mm. Australia, even though it can always be done better, I, I think the advice has generally been good. There will always be disagreements because it just ain't that easy.
2: Mm-hmm. Still, there's a trust issue, though, because a lot of people aren't convinced and there's a lot of uh, vaccine hesitancy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: People are ju- a lot of people, especially up here on the North Coast, you'd be surprised to hear, <laughs> uh, Dominique, are very, very suspicious and, and don't trust. A lot of people are not getting, don't want to get vaccinated. How, how can we rebuild that trust?
1: Yeah, look, that's, uh, look, they're really interesting points and, and, you know, the answers to that are difficult. I think one of the problems, one of the criticisms you can make uh, is that the communications about things, both medical and uh, a, a sort of economic impact of lockdowns, all of that sort of stuff, the vaccinations, hasn't necessarily been well explained. Mm. And that's a communications problem. More than I think it's a, a problem of facts. So I think we've not done a good job in explaining the risks of certain things, um, including the risks of certain of vaccines or certain vaccines and so on. You know, and and that that is a a failing, and I'm not quite sure how you know how we address that. I think you know society's changed. Social media is a new beast. You know, we didn't have this. With some of our previous pandemics, mm. you know that that also makes things difficult because you can kind of—it's all pretty unregulated, um, which can be both you know good and bad. So I think there there's a number of factors that 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 can contribute to those sorts of problems. Um, and I think you know, I I look, I don't have the answers, but I think it's around getting information from reliable sources. And getting information from, be it medical providers or whatever it might be, it's going to vary from person to person. But all of that stuff is 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 very important. Uh, and I think people should naturally be um, suspicious—not suspicious, but you know, review what they're being told by whatever source. Um, um, but but you see this sort of discussion happen whenever there's a gap in the information that's available so because we don't know everything about covid because this is all happening so quickly and because the politicians don't have all the science to to help them make the decision then you get this kind of vacuum and everything swirls around and it becomes problematic and then you you can't hear the right stuff for all the noise that's around Uh, and and so You know, if the science was easy, then I think the politics would be better, but the science isn't easy, and so the politics and the understanding, therefore, people in the community is, you know, not as good as we'd all like.
2: Well, that's precisely why I wanted to get you on, Professor Dwyer. There are obviously a lot of unknowns, and there's a lot of confusion. Obviously, the scientific answers are not easy, and the politicians are doing the best that they can. You've been very generous with your time. I've just got a few quick questions, if mm-hmm. you could stick around. What do sure. you see as the most likely cause of this coronavirus uh, pandemic, the, the virus itself? Will it die away like sars COVID one did, or will it keep mutating and be with us for many years to come?
1: I, look, obviously don't know the answer to that, but I suspect we could well end up in a situation like we do with influenza, where, you know, it it happens every winter, Um, uh, we make a vaccine for it, different strains emerge in different parts of the world, we might have to change the vaccine, we might have to have an annual booster, I don't know, I, I, I think it'll be something we'll probably live with. I mean, there's another four coronaviruses that circulate in humans that have been around for 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 years and years and years. They're not major issues, but they do occur. Uh, So I think that SARS CoV 2 will be another virus that humans will have to live with. I think it'll be manageable. Uh, It may well, well, I can't, I don't know, but it may become over time less pathogenic. Viruses generally do, you know, after they circulate in humans for a while, they kind of come into a symbiotic sort of relationship and become less severe. Uh, I don't know that yet. But uh, so I think it'll be something we'll have around with us. And I think we'll continue to have to do certain things to uh, minimise its impact, be that vaccines or maybe there'll be new medications, treatments, be a range of things.
2: So in terms of being able to stop the spread of the virus and its variants, big question mark. Is it true to say that scientists like yourself have been warning us for years about the emergence of these viruses? And are health pandemics here to stay, like you alluded to there?
1: Oh, no, no question that they're here to stay. We've been planning for pandemics, obviously, for a long, long time, and it really got going in the late 1990s with bird flu when that first appeared in Hong Kong and that suddenly got everybody worried and then it's been through various refinements since including with the 2009 swine flu you know uh,
2: Mm. uh,
1: so so we have pandemics they get revised and they'll certainly be revised after this episode uh, and they'll get better in the same way that international organisations like the World Health Organisation or the United Nations, you know, will we'll have to develop plans to get better transmission of information about infections in countries, uh, better data more quickly, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, these things get refined and improved each time there's a problem. But I must say this pandemic, of course, has really been the biggest thing since the 1918-19 you know, Spanish flu, if you like. So, this has been a, a really big one. Uh, and I think the learnings from this, just like the ones from 1918 19, will be with many generations to come, actually. I mean, if you look at what the doctors said in 1918 19 in New South Wales about what to do about this bad flu strain. It's exactly what we're saying now, except they didn't have modern technology. Mm. They didn't have, you know, vaccines that they could make or diagnostic tests or anything like that. So but the principles of managing it haven't changed.
2: Mm. Well, there's no doubt we're going to learn a lot uh, from this pandemic. But what can we do to mitigate against a, a new virus appearing? We're not, we might not have too much time. Or, or is it impossible because we, we can't keep borders closed, can we? And Certainly not forever.
1: I think that uh, understanding how humans interact with their environment, I think, is really, really important. So we talk about this one health model uh, where if we understand what's going on in animals as well as understanding what goes in humans and work together and understand the interactions between animals and humans, then that is really important because pandemic's you know, despite our discussion, you know, pandemics essentially come from animal viruses or bacteria or what have you. So, you know, understanding both the human and the animal sphere and all the pressures on that, which can be environmental, climate change, you know, a whole range of different things, all of that stuff together is the way for science to progress. You know, you don't want to say, stay stuck in a silo um, of just saying, oh, I'm just going to do this without interacting with the other work that's going on around the world. I think that's a really important message. Mm. It helps us kind of prevent uh, another one, if and when that that occurs.
2: So a wake-up call about the way humans are living on this planet and the impact we're having on it.
1: Oh, for sure. Uh, I think undoubtedly. Uh, I think that that, that's important. You know, what does climate change mean? What does,
2: you know... uh... Loss of habitats.
1: yeah, habitats, all of those things, I think they're all part of it. You know, Uh, none of us live in, you know, separate from everything else. Um, So so understanding the whole, I think, is super important.
2: And I have one last question for you. You mentioned uh, your research in HIV uh, earlier on. You've also done a lot of um, research in this field on the epidemiology of sexually transmitted diseases such as HIV. Now, I've asked uh, this question of a colleague of yours when he came onto this program late last year, Professor Tony Cunningham, Director of the Centre for Virus Research at the Westmead Institute for Medical Research. But I'd like to hear from you on this as well. Some people uh, question how come how it is that we've been able to develop vaccines for a coronavirus for the very first time ever in lightning speed, so it seems, Mm -hmm. but we haven't been able to develop one, let alone a cure for HIV after about 40 years of research. Why is that?
1: Oh, gee, look, you know, again, I think uh, HIV is, you know, one of those, things where there's been some absolutely fantastic advances in treatment and management, but limited advances in vaccination. Um, and I think one of the really big differences is that it's the way the virus infects people and a and cell. So uh, HIV, you know, when it gets into a person and gets into their immune cells, it lives there forever. It becomes integrated into the DNA of that cell meaning that it's you know virtually impossible to get rid of. Uh, Coronaviruses and influenza and other things like that cause an acute infection. If you get over it then you don't have the virus in your body anymore. So if you get COVID-19 yes you could be sick and very sick even for a few weeks but once you recover you cannot detect the virus anymore. With HIV um, and there are other similar viruses, with HIV, if you get infected, then the virus is present in your body forevermore. Uh, and that's where, why one of the reasons why the vaccination is really, really difficult, um, because it's very hard for the body's immune system to get rid of something that's just sitting quietly in the DNA uh, of the host cell, um, you know, without killing the host cell. I think that's one of the really major features as to why a vaccine um, um, hasn't been developed for HIV. It's not for lack of trying, let me tell you.
2: Will there ever be one? Will there ever be a vaccine or or a cure for HIV? Uh,
1: look, again, you know, I'm optimistic. I think there will be. I mean, look, I did postgraduate research in the, in the laboratory of Professor Luke Montaigne, who is a guy who got the Nobel Prize for discovering HIV. And when I think... Of what it was like then, both in the laboratory and in the in the in the clinic, compared to what it is now, is just absolutely chalk and cheese. So the, the 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 development in okay, admittedly now it's you know 30 odd years, but it is really extraordinary. So I don't see why another 20 or 30 years of that same sort of uh, development and technology and so on will give us. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get us answers. So, you know, I'm optimistic that we will. It just hasn't been that easy.
2: I asked Professor Tony Cunningham how close we are. He said probably 10 years. What do you think?
1: Oh, it sounds good to me. You know, that. Is, that's called hedging your bets, that
2: one. <laughs> well, continue your great work, Professor Dominic Dwyer. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. We really appreciate your generous time with us here on Bay FM. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for now, It's been a pleasure.